Father, your word has power. We pray that you would unleash it in our midst this morning. Somehow speak through me as you uh, promised to speak through the preached word. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, we've seen no shortage of sexual sin in the Old Testament in the book of Genesis. We've not really ha- uh, taken it kind of head on. And I want to do that this morning. And you may, you may recall in the email that I sent, I kind of gave a little heads up that this would be the topic. But we'll, we'll try to hit it as um, appropriately as possible. And I think um, if kids have understanding, they probably um, are, are, should be hearing this, right? I mean, there's plenty of talk about the topic in the world at large. So hopefully we can shed truth on the matter this morning as we consider this word. Now, last week I said that Christianity is crazy. It's Its claims are wild and scandalous. We believe that God, the creator of the universe, wrote himself into the story, became enfleshed, came not to bring power to himself, but came to issue forth power to those in need. So much so that he gave his actual life, died on a cross for our sins, to atone for our sins. He was raised to new life and is now seated at the right hand of God. His kingdom is here. We just got a little, little taste of the kingdom just a moment ago. It's here, and if we have eyes to see, we can see fruits of the kingdom. But one of the things that Jesus' whole life highlights is James 4.10. It's a song you may have sung if you grew up in the 80s. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and he will lift you up. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and he will lift you up. James 4.10. Jesus' whole life was an example of that, right? King of heaven comes down, incarnates himself into the world, comes into the mess and mire of, of a sinful world, serves to the point of death, death on a cross, I can't get any lower. He, he goes all the way down to death on a descends into hell, is what we say in the Apostles' Creed. And then, raised to new life, ascends to the right hand of the Father. Now he's at heaven, he's humility before the Lord, exaltation. That's the Christian life, and that's one of the things that makes Christianity crazy. Joseph's life is following that same pattern of humiliation, exaltation. In fact, there's a series of humiliations, exaltations, right? He's sold as a slave to his brother. And then in this passage this morning, he's, he, he's, he's got a pretty good gig as a slave. And we'll, we'll get into that here in just a moment. But one of the things that makes Christianity so unique is that humility is a virtue for Christians. And what is humility? Paul says in Philippians 2, he gives us a good a good definition of humility. He says, humility is counting others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not to your own interests, but also to the interest of others. So we as Christians are called to, like Christ, consider the needs of others more important than ourselves, consider others more significant than us, and to humbly serve them. That's, that's what Christ did, and that's what we, his followers, are called to do as well. And here's the thing, humility works as a glue, it works as a cohesive, it actually brings communities apart, communities, um, it brings unity. And think about what's happening with Jesus, he humbled himself, he was exalted, and Paul says in Ephesians 1 that God is uniting all things, all of creation 
is being united to Christ the head. That's what humility did for Christ. Literally, all things in the universe are being united to him. It brings unity. Humility does. Now, on the other side, pride is in orbit around itself. It's looking around. How can you serve me? How can I be more significant than you? And this is true of sexual sin as well. This is true of sexual sin. Sexual sin, I want want to suggest to you, is a failure to be humble. It's a failure to count others more significant than you. It's a failure to consider the interest of others and to think first about your own interest. Sexual sin says, I am more significant than you, and my interests, my needs, my desires are more important and should be met before your needs are met. That's what sexual sin says, right? Humility and love binds together. Sexual sin and pride breaks apart. Breaks apart. And we're going to see that this morning as we consider really two questions. We're going to try to answer two questions. The first question is, what is lust? And the second question is, how do you flee from it? So as we consider this Joseph passage, we're going to consider what's lust and how do you flee from it? Now, Joseph... As, we, as you will recall, two weeks ago, his brothers wanted to kill him. They threw him in a pit and ended up not killing him, but selling him to Ishmaelite uh, slave traders who were going to Egypt. And he lands in Egypt. And he's got actually a pretty good situation as, as far as slavery goes. He's working for Potiphar. Uh, we don't know exactly what Potiphar did. His name means the gift of Ra, the sun god. Um, but he ha- he's a man of influence and power within Egypt. Maybe he was the head of the police or head of the, their army or military command. What, we, don't, we don't know exactly what he did, but he's a man of influence and power in one of the most powerful, influential places in the whole world at the time, in Egypt. And moreover, Joseph is a, um, is a house slave. He's serving, he's managing all of Potiphar's life, really. His belongings, everything is Joseph's to take care of. Okay? He's not out in the fields doing hard labor. He's in the house serving, bookkeeping, doing all of those things, okay? And here's what we learn here in verse 2. It says that God is with Joseph. And moreover, Joseph is being blessed by God in these these dire circumstances. And not just that, but Potiphar is being blessed because of Joseph, and we see that the, you know, the truth that God spoke to Abraham way at the beginning, that you, you, I'm going to raise you up, I'm going to bless you, and you're going to be a blessing to all nations, it's happening here. Joseph is in a foreign country in Egypt, and because his very presence is bringing blessing to Potiphar in his household, just as God promised. Now, we also learn that Joseph has his mom's good looks. Remember Rachel? She's described in a similar way. He, Joseph is described as well-built and handsome. And it says, verse 7, after time had passed, his master's wife cast her eyes on Joseph and said, lie with me. Potiphar's wife is, is lusting after, uh, after Joseph. Now, what's lust? Well, it's, it's an excessive desire for something. It doesn't have to be sexual. An excessive desire for something. It could be money. It could be power. It could be drugs. It could be food. It could be sex. Now, Generally, as a culture, we, I think we, we do a decent job, maybe it's maybe controversial, 
of recognizing an excessive desire for power or money or acclaim. We see that. We have plenty of stories and movies and stuff that say that can be really problematic. But in general, we, put, we don't really see it being problematic as it relates to sexual lust, sexual greed, an excessive desire for, um, for sexual lust. And it's a major force in our lives. I mean, you could say our whole lives are animated by lust. Peter Kraft, way back 30 years ago, he said, uh, we, we are um, obsessed with it. It's a sex-saturated world. And if you took away lust out of the picture, he said the whole, the whole economy would crash. I think all of advertising is built on it. So much of our world runs on appealing to our lust. Okay? Now, um, so trying to explain lust is like trying to explain a fish trying to explain water. You know, it's just hard to do. It's, it's kind of the air we breathe. It's all around. And it is all around. Okay? Um, por- pornography is the empire that we've organized around our, our lust. And it's estimated that one out of three Americans seek it, uh, seek it on a regular basis, at least a monthly basis. One out of three Americans seek out pornography. In 2019, there were three, three of the most popular porn sites were ahead of Wikipedia, Twitter, eBay, and Netflix in how much they were trafficked and viewed. Now, in order to begin to understand why this world just, that we're, that's surrounded with lust, why, why it's really problematic for us, we've got to think for a moment about what sex, what, what sex is and what it means for us. Um, Tim, Tim Keller has said um, human sexuality is like a sacrament. What's a sacrament? We, we come to this table every week, and, and sometimes we describe it. This is what a sacrament is. A sacrament is a visible sign and seal of an invisible reality. It's a visible, tangible, touchable sign and seal of something that is otherwise invisible in us. Our faith in Christ, the Spirit's presence in us, Christ communing with us. Okay, that's what a, that's what a sacrament is. It gives visible representation to a greater invisible reality. And so it is with human sexuality. Just as two people are joined together, that physical union is actually pointing to a deeper, more profound, invisible union that is the marriage relationship, the covenant relationship between uh, husband and wife. You could think of it, it it's, it's literally a sign, but it also, the sexual relationship also seals or strengthens or solidifies the relationship, uh, just, like, just like this does. Remember, we come and our faith is strengthened, we believe. Human sexuality was intended, designed to strengthen it. Did you know that during uh, relations, oxytocin is transferred between people? You know what oxytocin is? It's the bonding hormone. It's when, when a mother nurses her child, their baby and child are trading oxytocin. They're sharing it, and they're bonding as a result of it. It's actually like scientific that two people bond in the course of of sex. That's what's happening. Now, listen to what Keller says. It is a symbol of whole life entrustment 
and self-giving. That's what it is. It's a symbol of whole life entrustment and self-giving. And he says this, it shouldn't surprise us that um, sex makes us feel deeply connected to the other person, even when used wrongly. Unless you deliberately disable it, or through practice, you numb the original impulse, like through repeated wrong practice, you numb the, you, you numb the effects of it. it makes you, sex makes you feel personally interwoven and joined to another human being. It makes you feel like what is actually taking place physically, adjoining. In the midst of sexual passion, passion you naturally want to say extravagant things like, I'll always love you. Even if you're not even legally married, you may find yourself very quickly feeling marriage-like ties with the other person. It was designed to do that. That's why. Because it binds and seals. It's sort of like a sacrament. It binds and seals, too. And this is captured in the Hebrew uh, euphemism for sex, to know. That's what's taking place, a shared knowing a deep, profound connection between two people. And that's why Christians have said, and not just Christians, I I think every other major religion says this as well, um, that unless you're ready to share your whole life, your finances, your emotions, your spirituality, all of who you are, unless you're ready to share that, you're not ready to have sex with another person. Because sex points to the bigger sharing that's taking place, right? That's what, that's what it is. Now, here's the thing. So that, that's important that we understand that as we think about what lust is. Because lust does the exact opposite of that. Lust breaks apart. Lust severs. Sex and love bind. Lust breaks apart. It severs. If, if, if your lust is acted upon, it will wear down the cohesive power of sex. And we, as we said, we're especially susceptible to lust. I mean, the statistics on pornography is a perfect example. But even uniquely, I think we have a struggle with it. Oliver Wendell Holmes, a Supreme Court justice in the 1800s, uh, 1859, he he said this regarding the, the camera that was just becoming, you know, just finally arrived as a technology, the camera. Listen to what he says. Almost, you know, 160 years ago. Photography created an image with a memory. The time is coming, he said, when the image, he he foresaw this. There's this time coming. I see this with the photography. There's this time coming when the image would become more important than the object itself. And it would, in fact, make the object disposable, the actual thing disposable in favor of just the image He said, the time was coming when men would hunt all curious, beautiful, grand objects as they hunt cattle in South America, which I guess was a thing in the 19th century. They just just kill them for their skins, and they leave the carcass behind as of little worth. Holmes saw the arrival of the camera. He said, I think there's a time coming where people are going to, if given the option between image and object, like the real thing, the real person, They're going to opt for the image and discard the object. That's what he saw coming. And that's that's what lust does. It breaks apart image from object. And we're going to to look at that more uh, in just a moment. But I want us to see it here in this passage that we have here before us. 
So first thing I want to say about lust. Lust severs image from object. And we see this even with Potiphar's wife. Look at verse 11. So she's been uh, making these advances on him. And in verse 11, one day he goes into the house. And there were none of the men in the house. She caught him by his garment, saying, lie with me. But he left his garment in her hand and fled and got out of the house. And as soon as he saw that he had left his garment in her hand and had fled out of the house, she called to the men of her household and said to them, See, he's brought among us a Hebrew to laugh at us. He came into me to lie with me, and I cried out with a loud voice. As soon as he heard that I lifted up my voice and cried out, he ran out, left the garment beside me, and, and got out of the house. And then she tells Potiphar the same thing. Potiphar's wife doesn't love Joseph. She just lusts for him. That's it. She actually hates Joseph. Because she just put, here's why. She's just put a death sentence on him by crying assault to a slave. In this, in this culture, if you are a slave and you assault your master's wife, that's, that's the death penalty. Like automatic. And that's what she does. She doesn't love Joseph. She wants him dead. She actually hates Joseph, as we see. And that's what lust does. It, 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 it severs image. And we actually grow to hate the thing that sex is supposed to be, the binding quality, and we prefer the image of it. Now, so that's the first thing that, that sex does. It creates a wedge between image and object, between the, the, the appearance and the, real, and, the, and the actual person behind the appearance. Okay, second thing I want to see is that lust creates a wedge. It breaks apart spouses. It creates a wedge between spouses. We see that here too. Look at verses 19 and 20. As soon as his master heard the words that his wife spoke to him, this is the way your servant treated me. His anger was kindled. And Joseph's master took him and put him into the prison, the place where the, uh, where the king's prisoners were confined. Confined. And he was there in prison. Now, here's the remarkable thing. I said, if a slave assaulted the master's wife, what would happen to him? Off with his head, right? Now, Potiphar, it says he's angered by this whole thing. But where does he send him? To the, not just to prison, to the king's prison, where the king's prisoners were kept, where they played ping pong all day. That's where he sent them. Like, low, low, you know, not low security, but he's angry. So why does he do that? I believe his anger, his anger is towards his wife. He knows Potiphar, that his wife is up to no, no good. That she's sort of making this thing up. So he gives Joseph the softest possible treatment. And we don't know what happens to his wife because the story doesn't tell us. But here's the point. Potiphar's wife's lust has created, I believe, a wedge between Potiphar and his wife. And that's what, that's what lust does. How many spouses neglect the living, breathing, flesh and blood spouse sleeping next to them in favor of a glowing screen? Image over object. Jay Stringer says this, that if if there is pornographic use in a marriage, that marriage is two times more likely to end in divorce. It's statistically quantifiable that lust breaks apart marriages. Two times more likely to end in divorce if, if, 
if a partner in a marriage is engaging in pornographic use. Right? The image becomes greater than the object. It's exactly what Holmes anticipated, Oliver Wendell Holmes. And so, for that reason, if you are following your lusts leading, it is a horrible guide for understanding human sexuality. It's teaching you actually the opposite of what human sexuality is designed to do. Because remember, human sexuality vividly pictures unity, a uniting. And that's what it points to, is a deeper binding of love. And, 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 and love, of course, as we said at the beginning, is, is considers the needs of others. Lust considers my needs first. And as a result, there's a breaking apart that follows. There's a wreckage that follows lust. And, 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 it's, and just like we see here. Now, so love and lust are opposite. And, it, it, and just to give you, a, a, I think, a really helpful example of how lust is such a bad guide for thinking about sex, The Guardian said this. Um, it's, a, it, it's talking about porn use among young men and what it does. It says, Viagra's core market used to be older men in poor health. Until 2002, the incidence of men under 40 with ED was around 2 to 3%. Since 2008, when free streaming high-def porn became so readily available, it has steadily arisen. And now the studies say between, so 2 to 3% of men under 40 struggle with this ED. Now, post-saturation in pornography, 14 to 35% of young men struggle with ED. Now, the late, and by the way, this is not, a, the, the article went to great lengths to say, oh, in pornography, it's, it's a, we're not saying it's bad, we're just saying these are some of the bad consequences. It's like, what? It's like reading an article about the damage of cancer and say, well, we're not saying cancer's bad, but we're just saying this is kind of what happens when it hits you, right? We went to great lengths to sort of justify, but one of the person, Mary Sharp, of the Reward Foundation says, this is crazy, isn't it? But it's true. It's not crazy. It's not crazy. It's exactly what we've been saying about sin. Remember what we said about idolatry? How idolatry causes the thing worshipped to elude you? Remember, remember what the Psalms say about idolatry? That um, the idol that has ears but it can't hear, and the idol has eyeballs but it can't see, it's got a mouth but it can't speak, it's got a nose but it can't smell, it's got hands but it can't feel. The idol is lifeless and numb and dead to the world. And those who build them become like them, so do those who worship them. That if you exalt anything above where it's supposed to be in God's economy, you will you will lose both God and that thing. And this is a prime example of exactly what it's talking about. That if you exalt sexuality above its place and create an idol out of it and use pornography as a, as a means of worship, you have, statistically, you've deadened your ability to enjoy the thing. That's what, that's what this does. Now, the, another thing I want us to see here is that lust crouches we said last week that sin crouches. Um, sin, uh, it gets small, 
and conceals its, the threat that it poses so that it kind of can attract you in and then comes out at you. That's what sex. Lust crouches too. And we see it here in this passage. Look at verse 7 again. Back to verse 7. So uh, Potiphar's wife is making these advances and uh, she sees his attraction and then she casts her eyes on him and she says, lie with me. You could actually translate it, lie beside me. She's actually not inviting him to a sexual encounter. She's saying, let's just snuggle. Let's spoon together. That's what she's saying. It's a, it's a more innocuous invitation. And that's what lust does. It crouches, right? It, it looks safe. It looks harmless. Pastor in Tulsa um, told the story of his son who came to him. Teenage son came to him and just was downtrodden and just seemed burdened. And his son confessed to him that he had been struggling with lust. And they talked about it, and he, um, you know, encouraged him and, and Jesus and, and said, you know, we, we love you. Jesus loves you. He said, now let's think about how we can kind of avoid this in the future. What, what's your, where are you finding this content? And he said, mom's Renaissance art book. <laughs> He's like, okay, well, we can, we can handle that. And, and here's the thing, though. After the service, after the service, a person in his congregation came to him and said, I wish I had that conversation with my dad. I've lost my family. I've lost my children. I've lost my wife. I fell deep into pornography. And it started with the Penny's lingerie section of the Penny's catalog. Had I gone to my dad or my pastor in that, could this have been avoided? And another point coming out of that, and this is something the pastor was saying, parents, when your kids sin, are you encouraging an environment where they run to you or run from you in their sin? Praise God, that pastor's son came to him and confessed to, confessed to him the sin. Right? But, sin, but lust crouches, right? It may start with the Renaissance art book. It seems safe enough, innocuous enough, but you're messing with a lion. You're messing with a lion that wants to destroy you. Lust crouches. Now, the question, though, is that we need to now consider, that, that's a little bit on what lust is and what it does to us, but how, how do you flee from it? How do you flee from lust? Joseph is literally running out of the house for his life. Um, how, do you, how do we flee it? Well, the first thing we need to see is, is from this passage here is we get rooted in the truth. That's the first thing. How do you run from it? You get rooted in the truth. Look at verse 8. Uh, Joseph here, we see him acting clear-headedly. He's, he's being loving. He's being humble. Look at what he says in verse 8. So Potiphar's wife is making her advances. And it says that he refused and said to his master's wife, Behold, because of me, my master has no concern about anything in the house. He's put everything that he has in my charge. It's actually pretty remarkable, the amount of trust that Potiphar has given to Joseph. And Joseph recognizes it. He's not greater than me. My master's not greater than me. Nor has he kept back anything from me except for you because you're his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? Joseph identifies three truths as it relates to this sin. One, it would be a break of trust between me and my neighbor, between me and my boss, Potiphar. 
Two, it would dishonor you, his wife, he says. And three, it would be sinning against God. You see how he's, he's properly kind of suspended between all of these relationships, vertical relationship, it would be a sinning against God, horizontal relationship, it would break trust with my neighbor, it would dishonor you. He's, he's properly situated in the world. Remember what happens when we lust? Who, who gets to be, who's at the center of the universe when we lust? You are, me, whoever's lusting. You get to, you're at the, that's where Potiphar's wife is. She's at the center of the universe. Give me what I want, and if you don't give that to me, off with your head. That's what she says to him. She's at the center of the, But Joseph is operating out of the consideration of others, his neighbor, his boss, Potiphar, and God. Now, two weeks ago when we saw Joseph, he wasn't humble. He was arrogant. He was flaunting those dreams to his brothers. But we see that God is, is working on Joseph. Joseph is changing. He's understanding his, this slavery thing has, has humbled him. And he's considering, he's doing exactly what humility does, Paul says. Considering the needs of others and the interests of others first. Now, last week we saw Judah. and In fact, the Judah story and this story are placed side by side by, by design. Um, it's sort of like what not to do as it relates to sexual sin. And Joseph, an example of uh, some success when it relates to sexual temptation and sexual sin. But Judah, last week, we saw acting selfishly, selfishly towards Tamar, uh, selfishly engaging his lusts. And now Joseph, we see, rooting himself in the truth, is able to withstand sexual sin. So there you have it. You root yourself in the truth. So now, in the words of Bob Newhart, stop it. There's your answer, right? Lust is bad, we've learned that, and I'll stop doing it. That's not the end. It's, it's not just knowing what is right. There, there's, there's more to it than knowing what to do. Because all of us in here would probably agree that this is wrong, that lust is wrong. But how do you, stop, how do you, how do you fight the sin successfully? Well, there's a story in Greek mythology that I think is really insightful for this topic, and it's the story of Odysseus. Um, and his men, actually two stories that I'm going to share. Odysseus and his men are sailing the seas, and they have to come across this island of the sirens, where the sirens, these beautiful, um, beautiful creatures, beautiful women that are singing these songs. And, but when, when a person approaches the island, uh, the, the beautiful creatures become flesh-eating monsters, and they destroy the, the people that come. But they, they allure them. And Odysseus knows this. So here's what he does. He's sailing, and he says, okay, men, we're about to pass the island of the sirens. We got to withstand their, their enticements. So let's put wax in our ears so we can't hear the music. We're going to blindfold our eyes so we can't see them. And we're just going to keep rowing. Just keep rowing. So they does do that. But Odysseus thinks to himself, I kind of want to hear this music. It's supposed to be beautiful. Tie me to the mast and just leave me unblindfolded and no wax in my ears. So they do. And they start making their way through. And Odysseus starts hearing the music and he's taken by it. And he's like, stop. He's yelling at his men, stop, we've got to stop. We've got to stop at the island. But they, the men can't hear because they've got wax in their ears and they're blindfolded. And they make it, they, they pass, they, they survive. But not because of Odysseus, right? The example of Jason is, is better. Jason also takes 
a pa- he passes by the island of the Sirens, and he decides that he's going to bring along a man named Orpheus, the greatest music- musician in all the land. And, when, and, and he says, when we start hearing the music of the Sirens and we start getting drawn to them, I want you to play your heart out, Orpheus. Play the best music you can play. And so they're rowing, and they hear the music, and Orpheus starts playing his heart out. And, and, and Jason is so taken by the beautiful music of Orpheus that he doesn't, even, he doesn't even hear the sound of the sirens in passage, right? Jay Stringer, in a book I, I would encourage you to consider. I haven't read it myself, but I've heard good things about it, and what I've seen from it has been really good. One of you directed me to it this week. He says, um, healing from sexual sin is not about simply saying no. That's what Odysseus and his men did, right? They said, no. Wax in the ears, blindfold in the house. No, we're not going to stop. It's not, healing's not just about saying no. It's about saying yes, Stringer says, to truth, goodness, beauty. We might put it this way. It's about saying yes to Christ. It's about saying yes to Christ. It's about replacing lust, which is a certain kind of perverted, twisted beauty, and supplanting it with the far greater beauty of Christ. That's, that's how you overcome this. You can't just say no to that. You have to say yes to Christ. You have to fully repent. You have to turn from your Say no to sin, but then turn and say yes to Christ. Have you noticed that Joseph keeps losing his clothes? Every passage we've seen, he ends up without any clothes on. What's going on? There's something actually happening in that. God is stripping Joseph of all the things he clings to aside from him. And he's teaching him to learn how to cling to God, how for Joseph to cling to God. And it says that in verse 2. This is the key. This is the key for understanding this. It says the Lord was with Joseph. In verse 21, which is not printed in your order, but you can look at it if you have Bibles. Same thing. The Lord was with Joseph. The Lord is with Joseph. You know what Psalm 16 says happens when we're, when we're with the Lord, when we're in the presence of the Lord? In your presence, where Joseph is, there is fullness of joy. And at your right hand, pleasures evermore. At the right hand of God are pleasures evermore and fullness of joy. And that's the answer. Life with the Lord, seeking the, the pleasures evermore that exist in Christ. Because here's the thing, and this is one of the things Jay Stringer says, lust is, is really just the tip of the iceberg. Underneath that, there's like 80% of other things going on. And at its core, this is what lust promises, but what doesn't deliver, and what we're really seeking when we're seeking lust, is to be known and to be loved. That's what we want, really, to be known and to be loved, to be fully known and to be fully loved. That's what sex provides properly understood within the covenant of marriage. That's what it provides. But here's the thing. Even sex within, a, within the context of marriage won't deliver fully on your desire to be known and loved. Your biggest, most fundamental problem is the break that you have with your creator. And here's how we know this. Like, Jesus lived a perfectly fulfilled life. He was the exemplar of what it means to be human. And he never had sexual relations. He never married but he had a relationship, well, he's marrying his church, right? 
He had, he had a relationship with the Father in whom he found delight and joy, pleasures evermore, fullness of joy, as the psalm says. Now, here's the difficulty, though. What if, I fa- what if you fail? Maybe you think, I've done this a thousand times, turning from this thing, and then I fail again, again, again. I fail in this area. I, you know, Joseph, it says in verse 10 that she's, whispering these things to him, urging him uh, day after day. It's just ongoing in his life. And so it is in our own culture. A hundred things a day come at you trying to excite your lust. So how do you live in that world? Nate Larkin uh, founded a, a thing called the Samson Society. But Nate was a pastor, and he struggled with sexual sin. He struggled with pornography, and it was a very secret thing. It had to be, right? I mean, he could He's like, I couldn't confess this to my church. I would lose my job, my ministry. And it, downward spiral. And eventually he was um, engaging with a prostitute um, and continued to struggle. And finally, this is how, this is how the decades-long thing worked. He got into a recovery group, kind of a 12-step type program where he began sharing with others who had similar struggles their brokenness and inability to Recover from this. And he said this. After being in this group, you're kind of assigned a, a sponsor, a person that you talk to and call on a regular basis. And, and after being in this for some time, he had, a, he had a slip up where he failed again. And he called his sponsor and they talked for a while. And then in, in the end of the conversation, he said, I, I just need to tell you that I, that I slipped in and struggled again. I failed in this way. And he was, he was ready for the sponsor to just, you know, whack him over the head. Idiot, don't do that. We've been doing this for months now. And his, this is what his sponsor said. Man, I'm really sorry to hear that. He said, do you, do you like ice cream? And they, Nate was like, yeah. He goes, is there an ice cream place nearby? Yeah. Why don't you go get some ice cream? And he said, that was so powerful. Listen to what he says. That counteracted my deeply programmed habit to want to get up on the cross and atone for sins myself, to want to take a a beating from someone or from myself, to try to atone for my own sins. He said it was so powerful because here was another human being encouraging me to actually be blessed at the confession of sin with an ice cream cone all of a sudden, the love of Christ became real to me in that moment. And it was powerful. He was telling that man, by telling him to go get an ice cream cone, he was telling him, there is no condemnation in Christ. Your sins are forgiven. Go, celebrate. You confess sin. Go celebrate with an ice cream cone. To be known and loved. And ultimately, that's what we need as well, is what's happening to Joseph, right? He's being stripped of his clothes. We need to be stripped of our rags of righteousness and all the things we put on to try to clothe ourselves so that we can be clothed with Christ. Because in him, there is no condemnation. We're with Christ, and we can begin to enjoy the pleasures evermore that the Psalms speak of. Let's pray. Father, we... Put on Christ's righteousness and come boldly before you with certainty and confidence that you're with us. 
I believe many of us fail to, to believe that. We struggle to believe that. We sin and we slowly alienate ourselves from you. Um, the deceivers, Satan's primary strategy is to cause us to doubt your love and your acceptance and, your, and the work of Christ in our lives. Help us to be bold and confident in Christ, knowing that your care is on us, that we can indeed fight this sin and other sins that exist in our lives. And we pray that you would help us to foster the kind of community that Nate found in his struggle, the kind of community where people can fight sin together and be uh, lifted up in Christ, that we might be so audacious as to invite one who confesses sin to go get ice cream, to receive love, to be reminded that, that they are loved, that there is no condemnation in Christ. Root us more deeply in you. Our, our sexual passions have been perverted, and we're really pursuing you, our creator, um, when it boils down, when it all comes down to it. So help us to find you and to be confident of our standing in you. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.